if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, the beauty of the gospel is that God has saved us. He's freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. He's put us in Christ, who's now our life. So we've got to together surrender our lives and say, our lives are yours and we're your servants. It's not a radical version of Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't call the shots. He calls the shots. The Radical Together Podcast with teaching from David Platt. And welcome back to another episode of Radical Together. We're glad you joined us. And as always, you can listen to previous episodes on iTunes or online at Radical.net. Now, over the next few episodes of Radical Together, you're going to notice that it sounds a little different. As part of David's teaching ministry, he's had the privilege to speak at several events over the past few months, and we wanted to share those sermons with you here on Radical Together. This week's episode features a sermon David preached just a few weeks ago at the church at Brook Hills in Birmingham, Alabama. This sermon is from 2 Timothy 3 and 4, entitled, The Church at Brook Hills. It is agonizing joy to be with you this morning. And I use those words pretty intentionally. So it's joy. It is total joy to stand before you guys today. It's so funny. You still sit in the exact same places. Like... (laughs) I get up here and I instinctively know where to look for different ones of you, like, and you're still there. Uh, so uh, uh, if you're visiting this morning, just look at where the people are sitting next to you right now and come back next week and get here just a little bit earlier and sit where those people are sitting. You will totally throw them off. So uh, uh, it's, it's good to see you, to open God's Word with you in a minute. Just agonizing joy. So... And it has been over the last eight months as Heather and I have temporarily stayed here and, and, and our kids have temporarily stayed here in Birmingham uh, before moving, which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute, but as we've transitioned into this new role. So I've been here on many, if not most, Sundays. And, and as I've seen different ones of you in the halls and such, you've been so encouraging to me in so many ways, but it's, it's been agonizing. And it's surprised me why it's been agonizing. So it's, it's not been agonizing because I've not been preaching. So I thought that's why it would be agonizing. I thought it would be agonizing not to preach. I obviously, I love to preach. I love preaching as pastor here. But here's the deal. There's not been one Sunday when I've sat in here and thought, I really wish I was up there preaching right now. Uh, and I think for a couple of reasons. One, because the preaching has been so incredible that I've just been, yes, give glory to God for Jim and Matt and the way these brothers have shepherded us to the Word. I've just loved sitting under their leadership in the Word. I mean, I think if the preaching were horrible, that'd make it agonizing. Like, like oh, somebody get up there and do better than that. So I'm not saying I could, but obviously I've just never once thought that. And on another level, I've been just like everybody else, just traveling and working like crazy all week long. And I come in here with a thirsty soul on Sunday morning, just ready for somebody who's been hours in the Word to pour it into my heart. And so, uh, so it's not been agonizing, not preaching uh, what's been agonizing is just missing being a pastor here, being in that unique position before God of shepherding and caring for this body of believers. I was talking with Heather recently, and I told her, I said, I know without question, and we know without question, the Lord, we're, we're right where the Lord has put us. We're exactly where He has assigned us. There's no doubt in our minds. But I told Heather, I said, God is just, he's not taken away the desire to pastor the church of Brook Hills. He's not taken away. And I really wish he would. <laughs> I wish I couldn't stand you guys. and just ready to get out of here. Uh, but it's just not the case. It's still there. Um, I, I, just, I share all that to say I love you, brothers and sisters. I thank my God every time I remember you. I, pray for you regularly. And I've looked forward to this opportunity to open the word with you. So what I want to do is I want to share a little bit of a personal update. Um, 
uh, just on where we are family-wise, and then let that lead into a bit of an update on the IMB, which uh, I want to share with you that update because I, I was thinking about it. Acts 14, when Paul comes back from his first missionary journeys outside of Antioch, he comes back and he reports to them what's happening in, uh, on these missionary journeys. And so I want to report to you what, what's happening and give you a glimpse into what you sent me out to do. I really feel a sense of accountability to you as, a ch- as the church who I love who sent me out to do this work. And so I want to share with you some of that and then dive into the Word. It's funny, when I started considering what text to preach today, I obviously went to the Bible reading plan and uh, started with Ecclesiastes, talking about how meaningless everything is. And I thought, well, that's depressing. I'm already agonized enough, so we're not going Ecclesiastes. And then I realized today we're actually starting uh, the first chapter of Song of Solomon, so I thought, well, that'd be kind of interesting. That's a doozy to go out on. But uh, I just decided, you know, I mean, as important as that topic is, I just wanted to be our last kind of time together before I moved. So, uh, so that left me with, with Paul's pastoral epistles that he wrote from prison right before he was about to die. So that's what we're going with. Um, by God's grace, not in prison. Don't necessarily think I'm about to die, though i not guaranteed tomorrow, but... What Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3 and 4 really does sum up my hope and prayer for you as I prepare to depart Birmingham. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And while you're turning there, just a bit of personal update. Uh, I just finished out a series of traveling commitments that I had made uh, far before even going to the IMB was even on the radar um, so Heather and I have waited to finish out those traveling commitments uh, before moving to Richmond, Virginia, where the IMB is currently headquartered. So we've got a place there. We're uh, trying to sell our house here if anybody's interested. Um, and we're really looking forward to finally being in the same place uh, Heather and the kids have been here in Birmingham while well, I've been traveling all over North America and the world. And we are ready, to say the least, to be in the same place place together. Um, it's clear that marriage and parenting are not intended to be done uh, via distance. And uh, so discipline via FaceTime just doesn't work quite the same way. And so we're just ready to be together. But I thank you, thank you, thank you for the innumerable ways that members of this faith family have loved and cared for and served my family during this, this transition. They are doing well in large part because of God's grace in you toward them. So Caleb celebrating ninth birthday today. Joshua was baptized. Mary Ruth and Isaiah thriving, talking nonstop (laughs) all the time. So it's hard to believe Heather and I came here with no kids. So... Lord willing, the Platts will be around for a couple more Sundays, and then we're going to be moving in late May. So that leads to update on the IMB. So just a reminder of uh, what in the world I've been doing over the last eight months. The Spirit constrained me to go to lead the International Mission Board, which represents about 45,000 churches. So the Church of Brook Hills is one of those churches, joined together with over 40,000 other churches to give hundreds of millions of dollars every year to send and support missionaries around the world who are taking the gospel to those who've never heard it. So that's what the IMB is. It's pretty awesome what God has created. Uh, The largest mission-sending organization in the world, really in the history of Christianity, um, it's it's breathtaking, but uh, it's pretty critical times. So just to give you a a quick glimpse, um, 2009, The IMB hit a a peak when it came to missionaries that the 40,000 churches have sent out uh, at 5,600 missionaries uh, who are serving around the world. That was in 2009. Well, now, just over five years later, we're down to 4,800 missionaries, so 800 missionaries less, and we're actually fast on our way to 4,200 because financially, uh, the coalition of churches that IMB represents is not able to continue sustaining, uh, not only not able to increase the mission force overseas, but not able to sustain our current mission force overseas. And uh, so that's not tolerable. 
Like I read somewhere that in the history of the IMB, there's been 20,000 missionaries, which has been awesome. But reality is we need 20,000 now. Uh, the need is too great and too urgent. So just to give you a, a picture, I want to show you on the, on the screen in just a minute, uh, just a snapshot. And I want to share this with you. So you might think, well, why are you giving this IMB spiel? Well, I want to show you for two reasons. One, as really a sense of accountability that I feel towards you, this is what the Lord has called me out of here to do, and I want you to, to see that, but two, so that you can know how to pray for me, because just as I was here, I am in over my head there, and I could, yeah, I would covet your prayers for me. The way, the way I picture it, this maybe, see, maybe seem overly simplistic, but uh, if you look at the screen on one hand, you got Christians and churches. Uh, I know the church is not a building, so I preach that a lot here, so just go with me. It's just a picture. Uh, so Christians and churches. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got unreached people. You've got people who have the gospel and people who don't have the gospel. And it's not tolerable that people don't have the gospel. There's unreached people in the world. The only problem is right now, there's a pretty narrow funnel for getting Christians and churches from here to get the gospel over there. In other words, we've got a pretty narrow idea of what a missionary is and how to send a missionary. So uh, they've got to be like, extra trained in all these different ways. And, and then uh, we've got to fully support them. So they've got to leave their job and, and uh, then go overseas fully supported. So we've got a financial model even that limits the number of missionaries that are going to go to unreached people based on how much money there is there. And so my prayer is that in the days to come that... God and His grace would blow open that funnel and create multiple pathways for limitless missionaries to get the gospel to unreached people. So that's, that's the sentence that kind of sums up uh, where I'm wanting to lead the IMB to empower limitless missionary teams who are making disciples and multiplying churches among unreached peoples and places for the glory of God. Every word there, important, empowering. Uh, so here's the temptation. It's a dangerous temptation. And a mission organization as well as particularly a denominational mission organization is that it's possible for churches to begin to look at like the IMB and say, well, the, okay, the IMB does mission unreached peoples and we just kind of do ministry here. And it almost kind of farms out mission to an organization up here. And the organization begins to look at mission from the top down. Like, hey, just send us money, send us people, we'll take care of mission for you. Which actually misses the point, I think, of what Scripture shows us as the local church being the primary agent that God's going to use for the spread of the gospel to the world. The local church, the, the church at Brook Hills. Uh, one man named George Pentecost said years ago, to the pastor belongs the privilege and responsibility of the missionary problem. And basically what he was saying is mission organizations can, should, do what they will, but it's the responsibility of every pastor and every local church to fan a flame for God's global glory in the world. And that's what we see happening in the Bible. You look at Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch is worshiping, fasting, and praying, and the Spirit says, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them, which is exactly what we just did with the Brandons, which is what this church does all the time, uh, just saying, who is God leading out from among us? And then praying on them and sending, praying over them and sending them out. And so I want to see Antioch's all over the place, who are worshiping and fasting and praying, the Spirit doing that work. And then the IMB exists to empower Antioch to do that, empower Church of Brook Hills, help equip, equip the Church of Brook Hills to do that, and 45,000 other churches like it. Uh, so empowering, limitless. So that word limitless, to, I mean, I mean, praise God for almost 5,000 missionaries right now with the IMB, but I look in Christian history, I see the Moravians. One out of 92 of them were crossing cultures for the spread of the gospel. One out of 92. I mean, you take that ratio, you apply it to these 40,000 churches uh, that the, SB, the, the, IMB, uh, the IMB represents that Brook Hills has joined in, and they say there's 16 million members in those churches, but pastors kind of report numbers a little weird sometimes, so let's just assume there's actually 10 million of those people alive, and... Uh, and, and following Christ in the church, let's just give the benefit of the doubt. Let's just give a six million cushion on the end. But 10 million, if, if that ratio of Moravians was happening today, that'd be over 100,000 missionaries. But we're not even thinking in those kind of terms. And we've got to think in those kinds of terms. Which means we have to broaden the way we think about it because this is, this is where the Moravians, they weren't doing this because they had a sophisticated, well-financed mission board. It's because they were looking at their lives in the context of mission. They weren't just thinking, okay, i got to leave my job in order to go on mission. They were actually thinking, I need to leverage my job to go on mission. They were looking at opportunities. They had to get jobs around the world. 
that wouldn't need all the support. And they were saying, I'm going to go get a job there so I can be a part of the spread of the gospel where it's never been heard. And you think about the opportunities with the globalization of today's marketplace that are more for us than even for the Moravians. I mean, I was talking on the plane the other day uh, with a guy. He recognized me. He starts talking to me. He's from uh, Demopolis. Hugh from Demopolis, Alabama. Anybody know where Demopolis is? Okay, a few of you do. Uh, it's no metropolis, is it? Demopolis. Like, this is a small town. He works in lumber, and I ask him where he's going. And he says he's going to Mexico because his, his business is expanding into Mexico City. I said, are you anywhere else in the world? He said, yeah, we're in China, and we're looking to expand into uh, Indonesia and other parts of Southeast Asia. We're looking to get into Dubai and uh, the Middle East. And I said, Hugh, have you ever thought about how God has given these opportunities, not just for the spread of business, but for the spread of the gospel. And he's traveling with his associate, 24-year-old associate, who uh, is fluent in both Spanish and Mandarin. And, and the reality is, I saw a stat the other day that young singles coming out of college uh, are, are like 86% of them are willing to consider going overseas to look for work. And I thought, God's done that. Because he, he's opened up opportunities for people in all kinds of professions, not necessarily to leave their jobs, but to leverage their jobs for the spread of the gospel among the unreached. So you might be saying, well, now it sounds like you're kind of recruiting us. And that's exactly what I'm doing. So may God raise up tons more people from the church of Brook Hills and Birmingham and Demopolis and all across North America who are saying, okay, my, how can, what are the opportunities, unique opportunities, a doctor, teacher, engineer, lawyer, or just find a job somewhere in the world. And you think through, okay, not going alone, limitless missionary teams. So here's the beauty. It doesn't mean there's not some, some full support of a, of a, 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 a trained church planner who's going to give all their attention to church planning, who's not going to be working this, uh, this job during the week over here for 50 hours and then trying to plant churches on top of that. But, but picture this. What if, imagine a city. Take a city like Dubai or Shanghai or Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and, and one of these global cities. To have a church planner there in the middle, kind of a red um, there, who's kind of the, the center of saying we're going we're to work to make disciples and multiply churches, but surrounded by, think about it, professionals whose jobs are paying them to be there, students who universities will give scholarships for students to go and study there, retirees who can go to some of these global cities and Uncle Sam pay for it, and all of a sudden you got a 10 times the size of a team than with just one person and you're opening up limitless possibilities for the entire body of Christ to be involved in getting the gospel of Christ to the nations. So limitless missionary teams all working to make disciples and multiply churches. The Great Commission is clear. It's what we're about among unreached peoples and places. Uh, the, the other desire that the Lord has not taken away from my heart is the desire to move to Nepal. All the more when I turn on the news yesterday morning and see thousands of people dead or dying or suffering, most of whom have never even heard how much God loves them. more people spending an eternity in an everlasting hell who never even heard how they could go to heaven. Nobody told them. So may that whole concept of unreached peoples be eliminated in our day. I want to live and lead for that. Missionary teams, making disciples, multiplying churches among unreached peoples and places for the glory of God. And the thing is, if we as churches here could do this well, could think through how to leverage those God-given opportunities and getting Christians and churches to unreached people with the gospel, just think about how that can have multiplicative effect. Because then as we go to other churches, or we go to other places in the world, and churches are planted, then we can equip them to do the exact same thing. And the picture is, as, as long as our mission model is based on Western economic prosperity, we will not be of much use to the world when it comes to the global church. But when we're doing that here, then think about the multiplicative effect of getting the gospel to more and more and more unreached people. So I share all of that to say, one, uh, 
Please pray for wisdom and grace in, in seeing that become a reality. And two, I, I share all of that just out of a hope and a trust that uh, you and I, we will see that uh, God uh, indeed designed sending us out from here, from this church, for his glory among the nations. We'll get back to David's message in just a moment. If you missed the live simulcast of Secret Church 15 on April 24th, or you'd like to study through it again, you can now pre-order the DVD and small group discussion guide. Included in this material is a leader guide to walk your small group through a six-week study of Secret Church 15, Christ, Culture, and a Call to Action. As always, you can access the teaching portion and electronic copy of the study guide for free at Radical.net. And I want to encourage you to continue to pray and give to the relief efforts in Nepal. Just this past week, we heard of another earthquake that brought about even more devastation to that already hurting country. One way you can give is through Baptist Global Response. The International Mission Board is strategically partnering with BGR to lead the charge in bringing aid to the people of Nepal. BGR is on the ground in Nepal right now, and we want to ask you to consider giving. To find out more about the work BGR is doing in Nepal or to give, visit gobgr.org slash Nepal. Another way that you can give is through Radical's ministry partner, Mountain Child. Mountain Child is committed to addressing the urgent spiritual and physical needs of children and families throughout that country. Mountain Child is actively working to reach and bring aid to those in areas where entire villages were destroyed. You can find out more or give to Mountain Child by visiting mountainchild.org. We hope that you will join us in praying that God will raise up many to pray and give toward the relief efforts in Nepal. To learn more about how to pray for the people of Nepal, visit imb.org. Now here's David to finish out today's message. With that, uh, bring you to 2 Timothy. Um, and how I want to encourage you from the word. Uh, better yet, how Christ wants to encourage the church at Brook Hills today. When you look at Paul's letter to 2 Timothy, uh, you see Paul just pouring out your, I say letter to 2 Timothy, his second letter to Timothy, uh, just one Timothy, two letters. Uh, and Paul writes this letter and just pours out his heart to him. And these, this is Paul writing to a brother he loves. And every word, you read this book, just read it in a sitting, and you'll, it just feels like every word is, it's just filled with gravity. I remember the first time a brother in Christ encouraged me to memorize uh, larger passages or portions of the book of the Bible. And this is part of where I started. And I got in the flow of this text and it, it, it felt like just emotion from Paul dripping from every verse. And what I want you to notice is, is how Paul, Paul does two things in particular in this letter to Timothy. First, he reminds Timothy of things that Timothy has learned in the past. So he calls Timothy to remember, to look back, to not forget certain things. In fact, to turn back to uh, chapter 1 with me. Uh, so 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, and look at verse 3 where Paul starts and sing this, see this emphasis on, on remembering. Verse 3. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you. So Paul's looking back. He's remembering. Then he gets to verse 6. Read what he says there. He says, for this reason, I remind you, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So Paul reminds Timothy when he laid hands on him and prayed for God's grace and power on him. Then you get over to chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. What does Paul say there? First word, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. What an exhortation that is. Remember Jesus, Timothy. Apparently Paul knew enough to know about life and work and ministry that it's possible to totally forget the point. So Paul says, remember Jesus. Don't forget who you're worshiping, who you're serving, who you're preaching. Then you get down to the same chapter, chapter 2, verse 14, and Paul exhorts Timothy to remind them, the church, remind them of these things. In other words, Timothy, you remember these things, and then you remind them of these things. 
So you've got remembering, and then he continues, same verse, verse 14, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. This is the other thing Paul's doing in this letter. He's reminding Timothy of things he's learned in the past, and then he's charging Timothy to lead and to live in a certain way in the future. Something Paul did in his first letter to Timothy Chapter 1, verse 18 there said, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. That's how he frames the letter. And here in 2 Timothy, he doesn't always necessarily use this word charge, but this book is filled with charges, just to list a few. Chapter 1, verse 8, don't be ashamed, Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 13, follow the pattern of sound teaching that you heard from me. Chapter 1, verse 14, I charge you to guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Chapter 2, verse 1, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Share in suffering, chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 22, Paul charges Timothy to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Avoid godless people, chapter 3, verse 5. Continue in what you've learned, chapter 3, verse 14. And then you get to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1, which we're going to read this whole passage in a minute, but look what Paul says. He says in verse 1, I charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. So here's what I want to do, as I've prayed about how I might serve you with the word on this morning, specifically out of 2 Timothy. I simply want to give you two reminders and three charges. Two reminders of things you know. Not new information, things that you have learned in the past which then lead to three charges for your lives and your families and for this church in the future. So I'll give the first reminder and then give you two charges flowing from it and then give the second reminder followed by a final charge. And these reminders and charges based on the whole passage here from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 all the way to chapter 4, verse 8. So let's read it all here. This is the word of God to the church at Brook Hills. Verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there, is laid, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Reminder number one, something you already know. So this is not new information. It's something you've seen. We've seen together in the past that I want to urge you not to forget. Reminder number one, the Word does the work. The Word does the work. It's what this whole passage is about. Everything in this text revolves around God's Word. 
see at least, se- at least seven ways the word works according to this passage. First and foremost, the word saves. The word saves. Chapter 3, verse 15. The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The word saves. Now I want to be, be careful with that language there because the reality is we know Christ saves. Yet the revelation we have of Christ, who he is, what he's done, how he saves, that revelation is found where? In the word of God. And when we believe this word, we're saved. That's what Paul said in verse 14 in chapter 3. Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed. So we're saved through faith. But it's faith in what? It's faith in God's word. It's through believing God's word. Romans chapter 10 verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So these sacred writings, this book reveals the truth about how we can be saved from our sin. We don't make up our own path to salvation. God says, God has graciously said to us, here's how you can be saved from your sin. If you are visiting with us today and you are not a Christian, you're not a follower of Christ, maybe you've come with a friend, Maybe you've come just because you're exploring Christianity. We invite you to hear this good news. We are not celebrating a path we've come up with to make our way to God. We are gathered together in this room to celebrate the path God has made available to us. And the whole summary of this book can be found in this truth. There is a holy God in the universe who loves you so much so please hear this he loves you so much that even though you and all of us in this room have rebelled against him and it looks different in all kinds of cultures and all over the world but we've all rebelled against him in our hearts we turn to our way instead of his way yet he loves us so much that even though we deserve judgment before him he has sent his son God in the flesh to endure that judgment in our place instead of us. Jesus has died on a cross for our sins. He's died in our place. He's taken the payment of sin, death upon himself. And then, even better news, three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and the grave. So that anyone in this room, so that you and anybody on the planet, anyone not based on what you can do to try to earn a path to salvation, if you will simply trust in Jesus, believe that he died on a cross for your sins, that he has risen from the dead as Lord over all, that if you believe in him, you will be saved from all your sins. This is the story this book gives us. And that story, that revelation, has power to change your life on this day for all of eternity. So we invite you, we implore you to believe this word, to believe that truth today. And then to realize at that point, the word is just beginning its work. So the word saves, but keep going. The word teaches. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's a great phrase. Just to think that this book in front of us, or whether it's on iPad or phone or whatever, like these words we're reading are breathed out by God himself. It's an awesome thought. Breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for instructing. So, so the word teaches us who God is. You want to know God? Think about it. Do you want to know God? If so, you must learn from this word. It teaches who God is, how God works. You want to know what God is doing in history? This word will teach you. You want to grow in God? Do you you want to become all that the God who created you designed for you to be? This word has instructions for that. This word is our teacher. It's profitable for teaching. Third, the word convicts. It convicts. It's profitable for reproof, Paul says. Literally, conviction. Because we are all prone to wander from this word. We're prone to live according to our way instead of God's way. And part of the purpose of this word is to pull us back when we do. I remember when I was 16 years old, actually 15 years old, and learning to drive. 
And I'd be going down the road in the lane and gradually the car would start gliding toward the white line on the right side of the road or the yellow line in the middle of the road. And my dad would just be sitting there in the passenger seat calmly beside me say, saying, drifting, drifting. I say calmly. There were times where he would yell, drifting. <laughs> and this is what God's word does. We read it. This is why it's important to read it on a daily basis because as we read this word with hearts prone to wander in this world, it quietly whispers, drifting, drifting. Sometimes it yells, drifting. It jars us, it wakes us up. It convicts us before we go out of our lane into disaster. And this is a good work that the Word does in all of our lives. We need not be afraid of it. Anyone who is wise will welcome conviction from the Word. Fourth, the Word corrects. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. God's Word doesn't just sound an alarm in our hearts. It stimulates a change in our lives. The Word repositions it, reorients it, redirects us according to that which is wise and profitable and good for us and glorifying to God. And the word trains. It's profitable, profitable for training, Paul says, in righteousness. It trains us. It enables us. Just get this. It enables us to experience the righteousness that Christ has bought for us on a daily basis in our everyday lives. Marriage, family, work trains us. I think about training wheels on a bike, how they help kids sit on a bike for the first time, prop them up so they can learn to ride. I think about the importance of further training. One day I totally regret sending my two sons down the steepest hill in our neighborhood on bikes without properly training them how to use their brakes. I remember letting them go at the top of the hill seeing them round a corner momentarily out of my sight, hearing their cries and thinking, what have I done? I go running down as fast as I can only to see them again, but this time, one of them lying in the neighbor's yard, the other face first on the pavement in the middle of the road. Training is important. <laughs> fool despises training. A foolish father forgets training. The Word trains us to walk, to ride in righteousness so the Son of God, so the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Verse 17, the Word equips. Equips. Just think equipment. Whether it's equipment in sports. I mean, who goes into a football game without equipment on? Or your job, when you go to your job tomorrow morning, you need to be equipped mentally and socially and physically for what you do. So the Word is our equipment for good works and for godly lives in this world. The Word equips us and ultimately the Word transforms us that we might be complete. That we might be completely what God has designed us to be in Christ. This is the purpose and the power of God's Word. It doesn't just inform, it transforms Think about it. As we read this word, as we study it, as we meditate on it, as we memorize it, we hide in our hearts, this word comes alive in us. It molds our desires. It changes how we feel. It shapes our thoughts. It changes the way we think. It, it revolutionizes our lives. It changes the way we live as we grow into the image of Christ himself. The beauty of this book, its power, its purpose in all of our lives. This word is good, and it does, this, it does the work. Let me tell you a quick story I heard the other day from one of our missionaries. So this missionary sharing the gospel on the streets one day, and he had a New Testament with him, and the guy he's sharing the gospel with is looking at the New Testament, and he remarks, this guy remarks that it's got nice thin paper that would be really good for rolling cigarettes and smoking them. So the missionary says, I tell you what, I'll give you this New Testament, all of its nice paper, if you'll promise that before you tear out a page to make it into a cigarette, you'll read that page. So the guy thought about it and said, okay, I'll do that. It's good paper. Missionary said, okay, so I have your word that before you use a page to roll cigarettes, you'll read it. Is that right? 
The guy said, yeah, that's right. So the missionary gave him the New Testament, left. Came back a while later, a few weeks, a month later. The missionary was back on the same street, ran into this guy, asked him if he was keeping his promise to read the pages before rolling them into cigarettes. And the guy said, well, I read and smoked my way through Matthew. <laughs> and then I smoked my way through Mark and Luke. I smoked all the way to John 3. And I read this verse, verse 16, everything made sense. I realized that God loves me so much, he just died for my sins. Now I've asked him to forgive me and to become my Lord. The word does the work. Now I am not recommending that particular method of evangelism, <laughs> but I am reminding us this word has supernatural power. It does the work. Just to finish the story, the guy who smoked his way through the New Testament is now training to be a pastor. This word saves, it teaches, it convicts, it corrects, it trains, it equips. This word transforms lives and families and churches. So, charge number one, get a pastor who preaches it. Get a pastor who preaches it. I know this is known. I praise God this is known. I praise God this is nothing new. But this is probably what I pray for most for this church that I love right now. That in the days to come, you would be led by a pastor who firmly believes this word, who loves this word, who lives this word, a pastor whose life reflects this word, and a pastor who's preaching, trusts this word to do the work. I am convinced that this single factor will determine the future of the Church of Brook Hills more than any other factor. Does the lead senior pastor of this church preach the word? Does he love it? Does he live it? Is it evident in his preaching of it? That one factor will determine the future of the church at Brook Hills. And that may sound overly simplistic or an over, like an overstatement to some, but think about it. Nine years ago, this church got a 27-year-old kid to be your lead senior pastor. Looking back, I have no idea what you were smoking at that point. <laughs> no offense to the pastor's church team, but... I remember the first day I got into that office up there, I sat down at the desk and I thought, uh, what do I do? <laughs> I'd never pastored before. I didn't know how to pastor a church. You got a guy who didn't know how to pastor a church. So I remember, I remember sitting there at my desk and thinking, what do I do? And the thought comes to my mind, well, I got to say something on Sunday. So... <laughs> I'll just start working on that. And I did. And I remember, I was, I was thinking back, the first series we walked through was on the church. We look at biblical foundations of church government and church leadership. And within the first six months, we totally changed the church's bylaws. Why, why did we do that? Because I was an expert on bylaws? No. Because we determined that what we had in our bylaws needed to be more in line with God's word. So we changed our bylaws. I remember uh, the next series, Different to Make a Difference. We spent three weeks talking about how the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. We talked about our need to submit everything we do in our lives, in our families, and as a church to his word. Into that series, we had talked about, we'd studied how the early church was taking the gospel to the world. So we called people to commit to go out from here to take the gospel to some other place in the world on a short-term mission trip. And some of you were here that day, you, you remember it. We asked people who would commit to go to another place on the, in the world on a short-term mission trip to come to the front. And, and we filled not just the front, the steps. We filled the whole stage with people. There's hardly anybody left like sitting out there. And we got together as a staff the next week and we said, what in the world are we going to do? It was a disaster. Some of, some of you know. We tried to figure out what to do. It was a good disaster, but disaster nonetheless. As people just said, okay, the word says to go, so we're going to go. And this has been the story. It's, it's interesting. Over these last years, whenever we've interviewed a leader who might come and join us from somewhere else, our staff leaders will usually sit down as a group, and I'll just ask, I would just ask different people uh, to share what they appreciate most about the Church of Brook Hills, and invariably, different ones of them will say, this church, once they hear the word, they actually do it. And it's true. It's true. We would tell people, be careful what you show them in the Word because they're actually going to do it. 
And all it took was studying. We read James 1.27 one morning, and an entire foster care orphan ministry was born that's cared for children across this city and has had ripple effects in other churches for God's glory. People ask, well, how would you guys start that foster care ministry? Well, we read James 1, and the Word did the work. The, the whole radical deal was the Word's fault, right? <laughs> I know it wasn't my life. The whole basis for the, what became radical in my life started with looking at the New Testament and asking, is this really the Jesus I'm following? Because if I'm really following him, if I really believe this word is true, then my life should look very different. And then I, I came to you guys with the same word. And I said, I don't know if you remember that first Sunday, some of you who are here. We just read different passages and said, what does this mean? What would our lives look like if we actually believed this? And in the days to come, that word produced a work in so many different lives, in so many different ways. Even earlier, uh, as we were commissioning the Brandons out, Jeff talked about the influence of radical in his life and helping lead him to the church of Brook Hills. Now, church being planted in California. The word is doing all that work. In such a way that I hope, I pray, when people look at, back at the church of Brook Hills over the last eight years, nobody's saying, man, they had one wise, experienced pastor who really knew what he was doing. Instead, they might say, that pastor didn't have a clue. But God's word did the work. Did a mighty work. And lives changed and ministry started and people sent and churches planted. The word did all that. That's why I'm convinced this one factor will determine the future of the church at Brook Hills more than anything else. That it is that simple. I was in uh, Europe a couple weeks ago uh, in Germany and I had an opportunity uh, one day to go to Wartburg Castle which is the place, so Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the church door to Wittenberg, and then he went and testified for the deed of Worms and basically said, I'm not backing down from this. And as he left there, he was taken under cover of night to the castle at Wartburg and hid away there because there were threats against his life. And it was while he was hid away at the Wartburg castle that he translated the New Testament into German. And so I saw this little room where he translated the New Testament into German, and uh, I was reminded of the impact that Martin Luther had, not just on Germany in that day, but on us today. I mean, what happened when he gave the word into the hands of the people and the reformation that happened as a result of that? And I was reminded, I looked back up of one of my favorite quotes from Luther. When he was asked, so listen to this, when Luther was asked how he had that kind of impact, this is what he said. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip Melanchthon and my Amsdorf, Nicholas von Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Don't you love that? How did you start Reformation? Well, I read and taught the word. I slept and drank beer. Now, again, I'm not necessarily uh, uh, saying that this is the recipe for a reformation that we should follow. But I love the picture of a man's life and ministry that's put on display in such a way that it's clear the Word did the work. So, may you get a pastor who will preach and lead in such a way that it's clear the Word's doing the work. Charge number one, get a pastor who preaches it. And charge number two, be a people who prioritize it. Be a people who prioritize it. Notice the charge here in 2 Timothy has implications, not just for Timothy as he preaches the word, but for the people as they listen to it. You know this. You in this room face countless temptations to think about a new leader in terms of a charismatic personality with creativity and ingenuity and popularity that will excite and attract the crowds, which is exactly what Paul is warning against. He says, watch out for itching ears that love and look for teachers who say what seems right to them. It seems right in the world. Paul says, don't do it. The church is designed to be led by pastors, pre pastors who preach the word and people who prioritize the word in their lives, their families, and the church. People who know that the word is what they need day in and day out and week in and week out. People who know that apart from the word, they will wither in the world. Which is exactly what is happening across the church landscape in our culture. 
In the words of Walter Kaiser, many pastors today can preach whole messages with little more than a tip of the hat to a clause or two taken from a biblical context that few, if any, recognize. Even more pastors have decided that using the Bible is a handicap for meeting the needs of new generations. Therefore, they've gone to drawing their sermons from the plethora of recovery and pop psychology books that fill our Christian bookstores. The market forces demand that we give people what they want to hear if we wish them to return and pay for the mega sanctuaries that we have built. Don't do it. Apart from this word, Church of Brook Hills, you will wither and die. But if you have this word, it will do the work. Which leads to reminder number two. Again, something you know, but I remind you, the world needs this word. The world needs the word. Chapter 4, verse 1, is serious and sobering. Before Paul charges Timothy to preach the word, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Remember, Church of Brook Hills, I remind you today that God's judgment is real. We're not just playing games here. God, through Christ, is going to judge every single person on the planet. Just let that soak in. Seven billion people in the world one day are each going to be judged by God. They're all going to be judged by a holy God. And this includes the man or the woman in the office next to you tomorrow morning. This includes the student and the desk next to you tomorrow morning. They're going to be judged by God. This includes the neighbor and the family that lives across the street for you from you or next door to you. One day they're going to be judged by a holy God. This includes the waiter or the waitress who will serve you food at lunch this afternoon or next time you go to a restaurant. This includes the people that will check you out at a convenience store. And it includes every man, woman, child, worker around the world. They're going to be judged by God and His judgment will be eternal. It will be eternal. Based on His judgment, they will either go to everlasting joy or never-ending suffering. Which is where Everybody's headed. Which means they need this word. They need it. They, they need to know that's coming. They need to know that's coming. And they need to know how they can be saved on that day. That's their greatest need. Their greatest need. The people you work around tomorrow, the people who live next to you, the people you interact with, and the peoples around the world, their greatest need is to be saved by this word. And you've got it. You've got it in front of you. Some of us have had it ever since we were born. To use Paul's language to Timothy. From your youth, you've learned this from childhood. You've been given such a gift. Even if you're just getting it today for the first time, you got it. You got it. So don't keep it to yourself. 
His judgment is real. The time is urgent. You don't have time to waste, Paul says. The time is urgent. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, be ready at all times to proclaim this word to people in the world. Knowing that time is not on your side. Massive earthquake in Nepal yesterday should remind us all. No one is guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. And the people around us aren't guaranteed tomorrow. They're not guaranteed tomorrow. Time is urgent. And Christ's return is imminent. I charge you by his appearing and his kingdom, Paul says. Later in verse 8, he talks about that day when Jesus is going to appear. So get the picture. We've been given this word. We've been put in this world. And we've been commanded, charged to proclaim this word in this world until he comes. So charge number three. Let's do all that Christ calls us to do. Do all that Christ calls you to do. It's the last charge Paul gives at the end of this passage. Chapter 4, verse 5. Paul says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. And then he says these three words. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. In other words, do what you've been called to do. Complete the task Jesus has given you. Which is why Paul says right after this, I've fought the good Christ. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. In other words, Paul says, Christ has put me in this world to proclaim this word and I've done what he's called me to do. I've done all that Christ called me to do. Don't you want to say that on that day? <laughs> Who among us as followers of Christ wants to look back on that day and say, I, I give to, to myself? I did some of what you were calling me to do. Obviously, none of us will be perfect on that day. But don't we want to strive in a Second Timothy 4, 6 through 8 kind of way to pour our lives out and to say, I want to fight this fight. I want to finish this race. You and I have been given this word to proclaim in this world. So don't delay. Don't waste time. Don't stay silent. Do what Christ has called you to do. Surrender to Him completely. Abide in Him daily. Look at the people. Think about the people He's put around you in this world. Look at the peoples He's put around us in this world. And let's do. Let's give, go, sacrifice, whatever He says to do to make this word known. Without delay, without question, knowing that it will be costly. It's all over this text. Persecutions and sufferings back up in chapter 3, verse 11. He says in verse 12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says in chapter 4, verse 5, endure suffering. He talks about his journey as a faith-filled fight. There's no question. I was reminded of this this last weekend as uh, Secret Church had to be canceled here in light of threat. Claiming this word in this world will never be easy on any level. But here's the deal. Whether it involves going to our neighbor next door or to a nation on the other side of the world or both, let's speak this word with reckless abandon, doing all that Christ calls us to do in this world, knowing that it will be costly, but believing that it will be worth it. Maybe better stated, believing he will be worth it. I love this. Don't, don't start putting everything away. You've got to see the end of verse 8 where Paul talks about the crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to him on that day and not only to him, but also, so check this out, crown of righteousness also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you hear that? A crown of righteousness awaits who? All who have loved his appearing. This is where you and I come into this passage the language here is talking about all who are enthralled with Christ as they live in this world with a longing for him. They love him. They long to see him. They're eager to be with him. They're living for his return. So let's, let's do this. Like I mentioned, I don't think the time of my departure necessarily from the earth has come. I don't presume anything, but I do know that my time of departure from Birmingham has come. I, along with Jeff Brandon and a whole host of others, others who have gone out and will go out from here in the days to come, departing. But may this unite us together in view of the coming judgment of God with a holy urgency in our lives and a hopeful anticipation in our hearts. Let's all do whatever Christ calls us to do. Go wherever, give whatever, sacrifice however in order to proclaim this word to people and peoples around us in this world. Let's do that faithfully. 
You, as long as you're in Birmingham or wherever Christ leads you. Me, as long as I'm in Richmond or wherever Christ leads me. Let's fulfill our ministry faithfully until one day we gather together at this table again and we receive the crown of righteousness. Join together as a people who had the pure joy and privilege of working together on this earth to hasten his appearing. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to you. For more resources from David Platt, including those in other languages, visit Radical.net. And again, we hope you will consider giving to the Relief Efforts in Nepal through one of those two organizations I mentioned earlier. To give to Baptist Global Response, visit gobgr.org slash Nepal. And to learn more about or to give to Mountain Child, visit mountainchild.org. Join us next time for more teaching from David right here on the Radical Together podcast.